Do you all remember being in middle school, junior high back in my day? Being that, I, I mean, for some people, it's the most horrific time of their lives, right? But I, I taught history and Bible to middle schoolers here at Holden Christian Academy for 28 years. Loved it. Loved them. Still do. Anyone who has worked with that age group can testify that 6th through 8th graders are excruciatingly insecure. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I'm weak. Nobody likes me. It's just going around in their heads all the time. Thank God we're all grown up now. We've left those silly childhood insecurities behind. Well, we have, right? Well, the Bible's answer is no. We haven't. As Bob Dylan wrote, how long can you hate yourself for the weakness you conceal? The truth is, we despise our seemingly unrelenting weaknesses and insecurities. They still plague us. So, what do we do? We hide them. And we hide from them. We disguise them. We deny them. We dress them up to look like something else. We put a lot of energy into managing them. That compulsion to hide from the truth about ourselves is this probably, is certainly one of the single greatest consequences of the fall. The instant Adam and Eve disobey God, they hide. They hide from each other, they hide from God. But in one of the most liberating of gifts that comes with the package of following Jesus Christ is the freedom, the power, and the will to strive not to not be weak, but rather strive to stop covering it up anymore. That's the freedom to stop pretending. I got this. God wants you free to be hiding from your weaknesses. We are called to choose like Jesus and like the Apostle Paul, to embrace the weakness and the frailty, the limitations, the insecurities, the woundedness of simply being humans in this fallen world. And he calls us to live out of that truth. Why? 
Well, because it's the truth. But so that the power of God, the grace, the mercy, the love of God would grow ever more evident in our lives. Right? And this is primarily for ourselves. It's for our freedom, our delight, our happiness and joy. It just so happens in God's magnificent kingdom economy that that kind of approach to our own lives gets noticed by others as well. In fact, it's the most attractive dynamic of the gospel to other people. When we are vulnerable in our own weakness, people can listen to that. So the word of the Lord this morning from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Page 1011 in your Bibles, or of course it's printed right in your handouts if you have one of those. But even though I have it in my handout as well, I would rather read it from a Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom but on God's power. Word of the Lord, amen to that. Now, here's where the history thing comes in. In the first century, there are no church buildings anywhere. Paul is not writing to or for any particular local church as we would think of a local church today. He's writing to an an impossible to determine number of small house churches that are scattered throughout metropolitan Corinth. Now Holden has a population of 20,000 people give or take. Worcester has 200,000 people. Corinth has around 700,000 people in it. That's 10 full Gillette stadiums 
with, with seating on the field. Like for a Taylor Swift concert. 70,000 people, 10 of those. Paul's correspondence would circulate through them all. It would be like, okay, Holden Chapel gets a letter from the Apostle Paul, and Deb, Deborah would make a bunch of copies. Son went up to Pastor John at First Congo, another one over to Pastor Shiloh at First Baptist, and one to each of the other churches around us. Now, it's not hard to see with so many little clusters of Christians in and around Corinth and its suburbs, it's easy to see how rivalries, differences of opinion, and competing loyalties would and did develop among the Christians in and around Corinth. And that's what prompts all of this writing from Paul. We have in the Bible two very long letters. They're the two longest letters in the New Testament preserved for us. And there's at least one more letter to the Corinthians that Paul alludes to that's lost to us. And some scholars think there was even another one. No other church in the New Testament era gets anywhere near as much apostolic ink spilled on it as these Corinthians. So we ought to pay attention to that. Now, like most every other city in the Roman Empire, the first century, Corinth prided itself on professional promoters of its own cultural values. Not TVs or movies or TikTok or Instagram or YouTube influencers, but men, and I'm sorry ladies, it was always men, men of intelligence, experience, rhetorical skill, and very impressive oratory. This was a major gig in the first century. Men traveling from city to city, giving speeches in both public and private forums on various topics of the day. And these guys were good. They're practiced, competent, trained entertainers, really, who knew how to move an audience. They could inspire excitement, evoke emotion, stir passion in a crowd, and be witty, funny, clever, and engaging doing it. And then, after their performance, they pass the hat and move on. These are the folks stealing the hearts and the minds of the Corinthian Christians away from Paul, who by his own admission is not terribly impressive. 
And certainly Paul is not entertaining. But far more importantly to Paul, these guys and their performances of tremendous oratory skills, they are stealing the hearts and minds of the Corinthian Christians away from Paul's message. Because many of these very slick charlatans, many of them are talking about Jesus. I mean, Jesus is an item by now. His followers are all over the place. But these guys, while speaking of Jesus, are not preaching the gospel of Jesus. You see a lot more of this in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It's such a big issue with him, he's got to write a whole other letter to address it. So let's just take a mental break here. I learned in teaching that classes can stay with you for maybe 10 minutes. And then they start thinking about something else. So let's use that. Reflect on your own coming to Christ, your own conversion. I mean, it may have been through some dynamic speaker that you went to listen to. Certainly, that happens. But uh, that is not the case with most of us. You think about how long and how quietly, as it were, through some person or persons who were being patient and gentle and listening, vulnerable. That's what Paul wants to see in the preaching of the gospel. Well, let's just listen again. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom like those other people you've been listening to. I did not come like them. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. This is the apostle Paul. I came to you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. In marked contrast to those guys. My speech and my preaching, you know, my conversations and my sermons were not with persuasive words of wisdom like theirs are, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom or reason or argument or style, but on the power of God. See, for Paul, the correct content of the gospel is at stake here. But so also, too, is the correct delivery of those contents. That is, through 
weakness. Fear. Much trembling. May I remind you, this is the great Apostle Paul. In other words, Paul brought the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified to these Corinthian Christians in an extremely unimpressive, straight-talking, personally vulnerable, transparent, not entertaining normalness. Now, you just have to trust me on this. No preacher of the gospel, at least that I've ever met, really likes what Paul is saying here. You have to check with pastors Tom and Jonathan, see if they agree with me on this. But no Christian likes this very much either. We also want to be, or at least to appear to be, strong, dynamic, wise, impressive, memorable. At least I do. Which shouldn't surprise any of you, but may surprise some of you. But in keeping with our theme, 1 Corinthians, prescription for spiritual health, one will never become spiritually healthy. Never mind pastor a spiritually healthy congregation by striving to impress or entertain. Nothing, Paul says, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, for my money, this may qualify as the single most succinct summary of what this whole book is all about. Just chunk it up into three parts like Paul does. Part one, Jesus. Now, Jesus, by using Jesus, by saying that word, that name, it's the given birth name of one specific individual. It's one of the most common of Jewish names, by the way. I mean, there's Joshua, Yeshua, they're all over the place. But this Jesus that I'm talking about, Paul says, was born and raised in a place called Nazareth. And it's in Galilee, one of the Roman provinces. You can go see it if you want to. You can even talk to people who knew him. I mean, most of the first generation believers are still around. You might even be able, if you don't believe me, you might be able to go and interview his mom or his brothers. This Jesus that I'm talking about just a few years ago, in Paul's time frame, was walking around Galilee, teaching, preaching, telling stories and parables, healing all conceivable manner of diseases, performing miracles, even raising the dead. I mean, you've already heard, Corinthian Christians, you've already heard many of these stories 
from reliable sources. Okay. Now that particular man, Jesus, and no other Jesus of all the thousands that there are right now, that Jesus is also the Christ. Not a last name. For years I thought, no, that was his last name. Right? It's a title bestowed upon him by God. And that title means he is the savior of the world. He is the redeemer of all humankind. He is the king of all kings, including Caesar. He is the Lord of all lords. They are all in the same position in relation to him. So make no mistake, friends. The Bible declares in no uncertain or ambiguous availed terms that this Jesus, the one who was from Nazareth, is God himself in human flesh. As Elder Max was reminding us this morning, God become man. Now, Jesus, the man who walked around Galilee and did all this stuff, is Christ, that title. And that in itself is pretty intense. That's a lot to swallow. But here comes the real sucker punch of the gospel. This is the one that will knock, knock you, take your breath away. That one, that Jesus, that Christ, crucified. A little more history. In the first century Roman world, crucifixion is in your face. Everywhere you go. Every city in the empire is displaying victims hanging on crosses outside the city gates, dead or dying. They would often be left up there for days and days and days. This is Rome's most effective visual reminder of the price for denying its authority and lordship over your life. Outside of every city, there are crosses as signs which say simply, don't mess with us. Nobody in the first century Roman world wants anything to do with crucifixion. Just keep us away, as far away from it as we can be. Now that's for the average non-Jewish first century person. But for Jews, this focus of Paul's, which he won't get off of, he repeats it over and over again in his letters, Christ crucified for Jews, that is the absolute abomination that nothing could be more damning than a crucified Messiah. 
Paul would explain this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Paul here quotes the Old Testament law of Moses that no Jew in his right mind is going to argue with. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. We worship a cursed Messiah. Cursed by God. Romans 3, 25, Paul picks up the same theme. God, hear this, friends. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This is God's sacrifice. His son. He did this, Paul says, to demonstrate his justice. The cross is all about amazing grace, for sure, but it's about justice first. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Calvary, put that last slide up there, John, if you could. Justice, here it is. The cross is God's justice His rightful, righteous, holy, perfect justice against all and every sin. It's all cursed upon the body of his own son on that cross. All for all time. It's all done. Like Jesus said in his last breath, it is finished. God's justice is perfectly satisfied for all time. But it is also, hallelujah, mercy towards every sinner, towards all of us. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, which is that... All there. In that one event, on that one day, in that one man, Jesus. It's God's ultimate display of his very being, his very essence. It's the singular, public, historic declaration of just how much he loves us all. Of just how deeply he longs to restore us to healthy, happy, healing, no more hiding relationship with himself and with one another. Calvary proves to the world what God was willing to do to bring us home where we all belong. Spiritual health 
is never away from the cross. It's always back to it. Our only safe place is at the foot of the cross, hanging on for dear life. As Pastor Tom said, there's a reason we share the Lord's table every time we gather together. Yes, it's so that we'll remember, but it also makes this definitive statement of what this church stands on. Namely, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for us all. That's what we do here. And that's what every faithful church will put front and center. So we always want to come back to the cross. It's the only safe place. And you know what? That is where we are the weakest, right? We've got nothing. We have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to bring. Except, as David would say, your broken and contrite heart, oh God. That's the sacrifice that delights the heart of the Father. What we have to bring to Calvary, to the cross, is our broken, wounded, failed, frail, fragile, wicked, insecure selves. And here's even better news. That's all God wants. He doesn't want our gifts. He gave them to us. Okay, we give them back to him, but they came from him to begin with. All I've got that's mine is this broken, frail weakness. That's me as a human sinner. That's all I got. But that's all he wants. How glorious is that? Because that's all any of us have got. Right? I want to encourage us this morning, fellow Christians, let's be done with trying to hide and to hide from what's wrong with us. We are defective, you know, deficient, disabled, diseased. And we're all pretending to be okay, to be better than we are. Let us embrace our reality, friends, and cling to the foot of the cross and stay there. And in that place where we refuse, from which we refuse to budge, invite others who are in their weakness and their brokenness and doing the best they can to cover it up. It's safe here. You can be free here. You can put all of that stuff behind you here. Because this is where we all are. And we got nothing except this sacrifice on our behalf. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus.